0: Uh, I'm going to uh, continue the David After a Man, uh, no, the David, A Man After God's Own Heart series. Might help if I knew it yeah. series we're in, uh, where over the last number of weeks, we've looked at the question, how is your heart? And then ending that question, how is your heart in this? And so we're going to carry this on. And as most of you know, I started uh, my worship and youth pastor role uh, in January 2020. Um, And being the worship pastor isn't just organising a rota and making sure that we have musicians and technical things, although that is definitely part of my role. Uh, It's also to help set the culture of worship around the Jubilee values, which we believe that God has called us to. It's to see how worship fits into mission and to foster and to grow a deep passion and a longing for the presence of God through the Holy Spirit as we glorify Jesus. And to be honest, I've been on a, quite a journey over the last few years with worship, something which has really come to a head with the pandemic. And I've been studying for a master's, that's the first thing I've been doing over the last few years, and I'm currently finishing off a research dissertation um, around worship leading, ethics, responsibilities with young people and things like that. So there's been a lot of reading around the subject of worship. Rob, back in January, spoke on the heart of worship. And this was a really timely and influential word for me at that time as well. And, and thirdly, I've been reading about and talking a lot with people in worship, with worship leaders, people who are uh, involved in worship in many different ways in churches. So all of this has made it really clear that so many people are asking the similar questions and searching at this time, especially around the loss of corporate worship. And so the question I want to ask this morning is, how is your heart for worship? Now we're going to look at David. David is really well known for his heart of worship. He's written 73 Psalms, well 73 of them are attributed to him anyway, including possibly one of the most famous Psalms that even many non-Christians that I speak to know, and that's the Lord is my shepherd. He played the lyre for Saul. He played instruments for Saul when Saul was king. Uh, So there's clearly this this thread of worship that runs through David. And we'll see a little bit later on that he used creative arts in his worship as well, which is quite exciting. We're going to be basing ourselves in 1 Chronicles chapter 13 and going through to chapter 16 today. I'm not going to read it all um, because that would be the end of the the time I've got together with you. But... Uh, we're going to be discovering the foundations for a heart of worship. So 1 Chronicles chapter 13 to 16 opens a little bit before what Becky and Simon spoke on over the last few weeks. We start after David has become king over all Israel in chapter 11. And then there's a record of all of David's allies and the warriors and those who joined him as mighty men and those who were ready for battle. And then we reach chapter 13 and David is talking with the commanders of 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 Israel and then to the whole of Israel as a whole. And in chapter 13, verse three, it says this. David said, let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul. Now the Ark of the Covenant in Exodus 25 and 37, there's descriptions of it. Was the only piece of furniture in the most holy place of the Tabernacle following Israel's Exodus in the time and their time in the desert. It was there that God lived and talked with Moses as a representative of Israel. And in David's time, it was a symbol of the promise that God made with Moses and of God's presence on earth. So part of what David's doing here is rediscovering the ark of God's presence. David realizes that the ark has been neglected by Saul when he was king. It was captured by the Philistines and it was eventually returned to them to a place called Kiriath-Jerim, where it stayed for a long time. Saul neglected the ark And David wanted to retrieve it. He wanted to rediscover the presence of God. And here we see a complete difference between the heart of Saul and the heart of David. Saul completely understood the system of worship, but he completely neglected the ark, showing he had no heart for the presence of God. The heart of Saul is a formula for worship. In uh, 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 8, Saul is having to wait for Samuel to come and perform a burnt offering. And Saul knows that he should wait for Samuel to perform that burnt offering, but he got impatient. And the circumstances around him led him to, to rely on religious ritual. I know what I'm doing. It's fine. I'll be okay. He completely relied on the formula for worship. But the heart of David was for the presence of God, the glory of the Lord, the spirit of God. The heart of David, the priority of David was his obedience and his commitment to God. He was a man after God's own heart in worship. So one of the questions today is whose heart is your heart like at this time? Do you identify with the heart of Saul or with the heart of David? Jeremy Riddle, who was a worship leader at Bethel until recently, wrote a book called Reset. And in it, he gives quite a strong challenge to worship leaders, especially of whether we are building on the foundations of God or building on the foundations of man. Stripping away the noise. The theatrics, the music, the possible self seeking motives of being on stage to find our foundation, which is the longing of God. Pete Gregg, the founder of the 24 7 movement, quite shockingly writes in his book Dirty Glory that maybe we've started to worship worship itself. We long to worship, but maybe we long to worship for the experience and the formula of worship rather than the glorification and the magnification of God. Often creating a pedestal, maybe, that we put music and worship leaders on. And all of this asks a further question, well, what's our heart's motivation to gather? Is it a heart of soul to get back to the formula of worship, the way it makes us feel, the joyful encounter of, oh, it's just so good when you leave a worship session. Or is it the heart of David a longing to get back to the presence of God, to see beyond the formula of worship and rediscover the foundation for a heart of worship? Now don't get me wrong, I just long to worship. Everything inside me today wanted to tear off my face mask and sing as loudly as I could. I want to see his glory and his presence with other people in a way that is together. Actually singing with a corporate response together. It was so great. The other week we got the worship team in here um, and we just sang together, six of us at a time, just singing. And it was just wonderful to do. And I cannot wait. I love the music. I love the way we sing. But the heart of David is one after the presence of God, one after the heart of God. It is the presence of God in our lives through Jesus. And it's not the formula or the practice of worship, which should be our foundation. Presence, not practice. And obedience to following after God. His plans, his work in our life, and not just the ritual and the formula of praise. It's all about priorities. David's priority was the presence of God at the centre. And we need presence, not formula. Uh, David's first attempt to recover the ark did not go very well. He popped it on a cart and they wheeled it away. And then in chapter 13, verse 9, we see that the, the, uh, the ark, the, the ox who were pulling the ark stumbled. And uh, poor Uzzah reached out, popped his hand on the ark to stop it from falling and was struck down dead. Now, Ruth threw a curveball curveball in the office to me the other day and said, what would happen if he didn't put out his hand and the ark fell on the floor? And that took me off into a whole new realm. But I just thought, oh, gosh, let's not even go there. But it seems a bit of a strange thing to happen, that Uzzah was to put out his hand, stop the ark from falling, and, and ended up not in a particularly great position. But David does unpack this for us, which is really helpful. And I think at this moment we see that David had the right motive But he had the wrong plan. He wanted the presence of God at the center, but had the wrong plan of how to do it. You fast forward to chapter 15, verse 2, David starts talking a bit about what happened. Chapter 15, verse 2, David said, No one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, because the Lord chose them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister before him forever. We see that the Levites were supposed to carry the ark. It was supposed to be on poles. It was supposed to be carried properly. There was a right motive, but a wrong plan. So what exactly did David do wrong? Well, back a bit in chapter 14, we see that David is being attacked by the Philistines. And several times, David stops and inquires of the Lord. He consults God on the plan. And when it comes to moving the ark in chapter 15... And verse 13, David then says, it was because you, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of him how to do it in the prescribed way. David made a mistake in his plan was to not consult God. He'd done it a chapter beforehand, but then he'd forgotten to do it. In his quest to recover the furniture of God's presence, he completely forgot to ask the person of God how we should do it. Now, we don't have temple rituals, thankfully, uh, or an exact method to enable God's presence to come. It's not because we do something that God's presence is here. Matthew, Jesus reminds us in Matthew 18:20 uh, that where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. In fact, to continue the narrative through the Chronicles chapters, chapter 13 and 14, when the ark couldn't be returned to Jerusalem, it was taken to the house of Obed-Edom, where it stayed for three months. It says there that the Lord blessed the house of Obed-Edom and everything he had. The blessings of God followed the presence of God. Obed-Edom didn't have to do anything, he was just in his house, and he was blessed by having the ark there. Oh, what would it be like to have that moment, the constant presence of the living God with us all the time? Oh, wait, we do. Um, we, we don't need an ark or a temple. We, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Those who know God have been filled with the Holy Spirit. God is with us anyway. There's no ritual formula. However, I think there is something we can learn from David's mistake on focusing on the furniture of God's presence. You see, David's priority in heart was right. I want the presence of God. But his focus was still on the packaging, on the furniture. Once David realized that he needed to speak to God and understand that it wasn't just about bringing the furniture of God's presence back out of Jerusalem, his sacrifice was clear. In chapter 15, 14 and 15, it says this. So the priests and the Levites, Consecrated themselves in order to bring the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And then the Levites carried the ark of God with the poles on their shoulders as Moses had commanded. It was probably so much easier to carry the ark on a cart. It was probably a lot quicker. David wanted, I just want to get the presence of God back. David knew what he was doing. He was the king, he was anointed. I know what I'm doing, I know how to get this ark back. But actually, David needed a sacrifice. It was costly, potentially to his pride, I would imagine, three months of of having to leave the ark somewhere else. But his time as well. David needed to discover again the person of God, the one whose presence he was seeking to return. Now, if you're anything like me, you might have struggled not being part of large worship gatherings and worshipping together. Uh, I often put on YouTube and just see what it used to be like and think, oh, to have those times again. And we're having to find new ways of worshipping in our home. But something that I've been discovering recently is in Hebrews chapter 13, 15. It says, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. You see, offering a sacrifice of praise is actually quite easy when things are going really well, and they're right, and we're really sensing God at work. But to praise when it's hard or costly or difficult is a different matter. When I first felt God leading, uh, leading me to, to calling me to lead people in worship, I remember shutting myself in my room with an old guitar of my mum's, and just worshiping Jesus with a Soul Survivor songbook of chords playing Come Now is the Time to Worship over and over again, trying to miss out the B minor because I couldn't play it because it was too hard, and seeking God through giving him glory. It was time costly. It was a sacrifice. It was probably really costly to my parents as well downstairs. But even now, Rob encourages me to get over here during the week and just sing and worship. It's costly. It's sacrificial. I've got other things to do. But where's the priority in wanting to chase after the presence of God? Like David, I could just rely on my gifting and my passion. I know I can do. I know what I'm doing. I know how to do it. And this is something I've been looking at in my dissertation. I know how to do it. I know what I'm doing. The foundation of God's presence can get clouded by the furniture of where God's presence is found. And that, in my case, sometimes can be me. It can be you. It can be, I know what I'm doing, I know how to do this, it's all okay. The foundation for a heart of worship requires sacrifice. It, to find a deeper friendship with God and then a total reliance on him. The foundation for the heart of God is about sacrifice, not eternal, external reliance. In Luke chapter 7, verse 36, you see the woman with the alabaster jar. I won't read the story now, but uh, this this lady walks into the house where Jesus is, which is full of of religious men. At the time, that would have been improper in in its own way. But she was described in the Bible as a woman who not to be associated with. She was a woman who was a sinner. And she came and she emptied an expensive jar of ointment and wept and kissed the feet of Jesus in worship. There was no popularity being sought there. She wasn't going to gain any brownie points at all from doing that, from anyone gathered there. In fact, she really didn't earn any brownie, 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 brownie points from them. But her desire was not for the formula of worship. It wasn't for the furniture. It wasn't for the packaging of where Jesus and how his presence could be found and where he was. She wanted to get at his feet and encounter him, to be close to him. Her sacrifice to do this was incredible. She would not have known what she was going to face when she walked into that room, but she was so desperate to get there, she needed to be at the feet of Jesus. We see a further sacrifice from David a little bit later on, when actually the ark does arrive in Jerusalem. Chapter 15 and verse 25 has this wonderful explanation of what happens when they walk into Jerusalem with the ark. The sound must have been incredible. The sound today from the trombone was incredible enough. But shouts, ram's horns, trumpets, cymbals, lyres, harps, a crowd shouting. There was a choir master who was there to, to lead the choir. And then David dancing and, in some translations, leaping around. The roots for those words are in whirling, whirling and bounding. Just seeing this man just whirling and bounding around, The Ark of the Covenant. Just another demonstration of a sacrifice of praise. So much so that Saul's daughter, David's wife, despised him. There's the heart of Saul. Right there in the middle of David's joy at the rediscovery of the presence of God is somebody criticising the formula of worship. In the version of this story in 2 Samuel Chapter 6, verse 22, David says, do you know what? I will become even more undignified than this. I'm going to give an even greater sacrifice than whirling and spinning around and shouting my praise because of what God has done. The presence is returning. The ark is coming back and God is in his rightful place. And there's a sacrifice that I need to bring to that. Now, you might not be able to sing a note. I know some people who can't. Uh, You might be missing corporate worship so much and have found worship so hard at home. You might find an outward expression of worship really uncomfortable. But I just believe there's a sacrifice required to see beyond this external reliance of worship to discover the friendship of the one whose presence we seek. The outward expression of worship has been a big one for me, actually. For some reason, uh, for quite a while, it was really hard for me to worship outwardly and expressively with arms and, and, and moving and using other, other things other than song in front of people that I grew up as a child. Uh, I don't know why, but I just really wanted to. But there was an embarrassment almost. I'd find myself in those situations where my hands would be shoved in my pockets and I'd be singing really loudly. But for some reason, I couldn't do it. I'm not sure why, but I think there was a sacrifice of pride that needed to come to express my worship fully and to remember that I long for the presence of God. Whereas my focus had been on the furniture, the external reliance of worshipping in a way that protects me and makes me comfortable. What will I look like if I had to get beyond that and say, no, God, it is you who I long for in your presence. And if I'm urged to do it, I should just go for it. It can be costly to carve out time to seek God, to overcome some of the distractions and the external reliances from encountering the presence of God in worship, some of the furniture that's around us, and bring to Him the thanksgiving and praise that He is due. So, a foundation for a heart of worship is about presence, not formula. It's about sacrifice and not external reliance. And finally, it's about a regular not an intermittent encounter in chapter 16 we see david orchestrating the worship around the ark the offerings the praise and thanks and then we get a big long psalm of thanksgiving recorded in chapter 16 until we get to verse 37 i'm going to read this because it's quite it's quite uh, it's just, there's something in this it says david left asaph and his associates before the ark of the covenant of the lord to minister there regularly According to each day's requirements, he also left Obed Edom, there he is again, and his 68 associates to minister with him. Obed Edom was also a gatekeeper, along with a few others. David left Zadok the priest and his fellow priests before the tabernacle of the Lord of the high place of Gibeon to present offerings to the Lord on the altar of burnt offering regularly, morning and evening, in accordance with everything written in the law of the Lord. Two words that kept coming up, or one word that kept coming up there is regularly. David did not return the Ark of the Covenant and go through all of that sacrifice. And therefore the presence of God coming back to Jerusalem for a one-time moment on a Sunday morning or a Saturday morning or a Wednesday evening. So much has been said about all of this so many times. about It's not just about Sunday. But I think there is something important here about the regularity of the priest's worshipping in the presence of God. One of my heroes is A.W. Tozer. Um, He's not a comfortable read, but there's a quote from him here. If you do not worship God seven days a week, you do not worship him on one day a week. There is no such thing in heaven as Sunday worship unless it's accompanied by Monday worship and Tuesday worship and so on. Again, please hear me. I long for the day when we can join together on a Sunday morning and sing rousing songs together as a body of believers giving glory to God. But to only focus on Sunday mornings or encounter meetings and packing the diary with formula worship is to focus on the intermittent. It's the chasing the Sunday. If I can just get to Sunday and worship, if I could just get to that encounter meeting. I really hope you're hearing me that I'm not having a bash at Sunday mornings And I am longing for the house of God to be filled again with his praise. But as we heard a few weeks ago from Becky, our plans are not God's plans and his ways are higher than ours. And sometimes we just don't understand. And until that day when restrictions are lifted, we need to long for the God of the house rather than the house of God, to coin a phrase that I heard recently. And that longing is a regular longing to worship God and draw close to him. Regular not intermittent encounters. So as I said at the beginning, I've been so challenged recently in this season of the pandemic. And I've come back to a word that many years ago, a world-renowned prophet, Kerry Southey, gave to me. Um, It was a word that that said that I would have my own individual sound. I've realised I was going to print this word out And I've completely forgotten to do it. So I'm just going to go and grab my phone because it's on there. Hang on a second. I want to prophesy this word basically over Jubilee because I feel like God is is leading me to do that. In fact, I don't think think it's on my phone. I'll see if I can remember it. But basically what Kerry Southey prophesied over me was that I would be distinctive in the generation. There would be something which is going to be done that would have my own individual sound. I'll tell you what, what I'll do is I'll put it on Facebook later and I'll, I'll put the prophetic word. But I want to basically prophesy this over Jubilee, yeah. that we would be known in our generation, that Jubilee would have our own individual sound in worship, that we would be something, something new would start from Jubilee. And that as we move, time, move, move forward in time in worship, we would find that God is using us as a generational move in this town. You see at Jubilee we sing songs from around the world. Some of those songs speak globally into where the church is at. You remember the blessing song I spoke about last week when I was hosting that just went round the world and it was just the, of that moment. But then there's other songs that we sing that just don't seem to fit. they just they just don't seem to, to, to take as well as, as other songs. And I, I've often thought, is this a consumerist thing? Is this just, we just need to plough on? But actually, I wonder whether those songs are written from a heart of what God is doing more locally in those songwriters. I believe that we need an individual sound at this time. We need a sound of what God is doing in this town. We need to write songs celebrating what God is doing in us and through us in Solihull. And what does this sound sound like? Well, I ask God, what does it sound like? And there's a phrase that keeps coming up time and time again at Jubilee. It's a seeing what the Father is doing and doing it kind of sound. What is God doing? Do it. What do you see the Father doing? Do it. And that's the kind of sound of worship that we need. And I want to kind of ground and root here going forward. Pete Gregg again encourages worshippers to be lost in wonder and then introduce others to that wonder. This is the journey that I am on as a worship pastor at Jubilee. God, what does it look like in Solihull to fall more in wonder with you, more in love with you, and then introduce others to the wonder of you through worship? What does it look like in Solihull to do that? So how is your heart for worship? I think the foundations for a heart of worship that we've looked at can be summarised with three F's. Just to help us remember, and it's you know, it's a good pattern. Formula. Saul's heart longed for formula, and David's heart longed for a presence of God. A foundation for a heart of worship is about presence and not about formula. The furniture. David's mistake was to focus on the external reliance or the packaging of the presence of God, and forgot to talk to the one whose presence he was seeking after. There were sacrifices that David had to make in order to get to know the person of God in worship. You see, Jago House is not the place where we can encounter God's presence. You and I are not the place that we can be relied that we're not the ones who can be relied on to provide an account, encounter with God's presence. It's not because I'm here that, that God's presence is here, or you're here. It's because we are here together. We can worship God anywhere and we can get to know the one whose presence we seek in a deeper way. And his presence goes with us through the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. But this will mean a sacrifice of time, of pride and a focus away from the furniture of what we see. The foundation of God is sacrifice, not external reliance. And finally, the final F is friendship. David realises that it's a deeper relationship with God that is needed. A friendship with God that goes beyond anything else. The heart of Saul relied on worship based on ritual and repetition. But the heart of David relied on worship based on friendship and regularly talking with the one his attention and gaze was captivated by. A foundation for a heart of worship is about regular, not intermittent encounters with God. So these F's can remind us of our fourth F, which is the foundations of the heart of worship. A heart like David, that even though he made mistakes, his foundation was to seek after the presence of God, sacrifice his reliance on other things and encounter God regularly. And that was his priority and forms a foundation for a heart of worship in us too.